Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome to today's online event hosted by the International Inequalities Institute and the Department of Sociology. My name is Luna Glucksberg and I'm a research fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at LSE. I am incredibly pleased to be chairing today's event titled Families and Money, Exploring Gender Inequality in Elite Families. Our speakers today are Professor Annette Leroux, Dr. Alaya Rayo, and Sibyl Gillac. They will be discussing how gender shapes power dynamics and inequalities in elite families. Annette Leroux is the Edmund J. and Louis W. Kahn Endowed Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of award-winning books, Unequal Childhood and Home Advantage. Her most recent book, Listening to People, a practical guide to interviewing, participant observation, data analysis, and writing it all up, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. Sibyl Galak is a research fellow in sociology at the French National Center for Scientific Research with Céline Bessia, she is the author of the book, The Gender of Capital, How Families Perpetuate Wealth Inequality. Alia Rao is an assistant professor in qualitative research methodology in the Department of Methodology and a faculty associate at the International Inequalities Institute. She is also author of Crunch Time, How Married Couples Confront Unemployment. Please note, that we have a live captioner and BSL interpreter at today's event. To activate the captions, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screens. You can also access larger captions by using the link that has been posted in the chat box. If you wish to make use of the BSL interpreting, please pin the two interpreters to your screen. To do this, hover over each of their videos, click the three dots and select pin. How will it work? This event will run for around one hour and 30 minutes from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Our speakers will present for around an hour and as usual, there will be a chance for our audience to pose questions and in the final 30 minutes of the event. Please do so by utilizing the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens, stating your name and affiliation where possible. The next public event to be held at the II is a seminar is a seminar titled Expectations about the Productivity of Effort and Academic Outcomes, and it will take place at 4.30 p.m. on Wednesday, 6th of April. Link to the event, along with more upcoming events, can be found in the chat. So without any further ado, please, Annette. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm bringing up my PowerPoint on the screen. Uh, many thanks to all the people who worked to make this event happen, um, including um, Adele and, of course, Catherine uh, Katarina Hecht, as well as our distinguished speakers. And this is a, the, a different version of this paper will be published in the Russell Sage Journal uh, in the next year or two. So we know that... Um, right, Sorry, um, that there's a stickiness of gender 
and uh, in family life. But families are often conceived of primarily as institutions of affect, and the economic power has been often downplayed. And and yet also status is this very important pattern in daily life, including inside the family and outside the family, where there's a pattern of deference and esteem to the honored party. And in this paper, the key mechanisms are, we know certainly quite a lot, but some aspects are less clear. And it's especially less clear among the very elite, the, the most wealthy. And so in my comments today, I want to talk about how does economic opportunities provide, does economic power provide opportunities for women? I mean, you would think of it, anyone's going to have this, these very highly educated, very competent women with tremendous resources might be able to have a little bit more egalitarian dynamics in their intimate lives. Um, and of course, this is a qualitative study, but I see the interview as a performance where they're recounting their daily lives. So we have our first technical, there we go. Okay, so there's, um, of course, there's ample research, including by uh, Professor Rao about uh, stickiness of gender and family life, and that we have enormous literature on the gender division of labor, on sexual behavior and childbearing, on economic issues. And we know from many studies of the workplace that women are very harshly judged for being um, agentic, proactive, and showing leadership in key ways. Um, Marion Cooper in her book uh, shows that as families become more wealthy, men take often a more powerful role. And Professor Rao's book shows in, in the case of unemployment, even very career identified women who have large incomes when they're unemployed, the gender norms, as she'll probably tell us, um, become very powerful. And so this gender stickiness shapes many aspects of intimate relationships, particularly if women show economic power by, for example, earning more than men. And we have many valuable quantitative studies that teach us about the negative impact of this dynamics and thus reducing the likelihood of marriage, men's participation in household chores, marital satisfaction and divorce, and even a, a relatively recent report, which in the United States actually happened to have confidential data from the Census Bureau where people reported their income, and then the IRS where they were uh, getting taxes, they found that when the wife earns more, both, the hu both husbands and wives exaggerate husbands' earnings and diminish wives' earnings. And all of this is to help us just remember that families are not isolated institutions, but they're situated in a broader cultural context. And my colleague, uh, Pilar Ganalons-Pons, and a co-author in an article in American Sociological Review, remind us of the broader cultural context. And they looked at countries where there was more traditional gender roles and others where there was not. And they found that when men, people were unemployed, men were unemployed, that the divorce rate was higher when there was a traditional gender norm. And here in this quote, they're noting this issue of uh, the reinforcement of gender cultures and how that can create a deterioration in romantic relationships. But we have relatively few studies of the wealthy. A very famous study by Susan Ostrander was over almost 40 years ago. 
And during that time, we've seen tremendous changes in occupational, political, and social roles of women. And um, But it's a relatively recent study of Rachel Sherman at um, the New School had very wealthy couples. And but she reported that the control of the money really followed the person who inherited the money. And so she saw less, there were certainly gender issues and people felt they were, quote, um, swimming upstream if uh, women had more money than men. But overall, they, she really thought that the person who inherited the money is what she found in her data was really the key issue. And so in my paper today, to preview my argument, I'm going to try to suggest that we really need to emphasize even more, redouble more on the social cultural processes, which are sustaining men's position as key economic agents within the family. And based on my in-depth interviews with very wealthy families, which I'll tell you about in a second, um, I find that men are deeply knowledgeable um, while men, women proclaim ignorance. And men, as men have just much more economic knowledge and export expertise as well as power that both men and women report. Men report, women spoke with great animation in the interviews and, and, and revealed very detailed and confidential aspects of their to intimate lives. But when it came to money and economic, they just reported disengagement and disinterest or affect was flat. And um, while men, looked very animated and excited. In addition, there was a pattern where if women had more money than men that couple, uh, people just reported it prevented marriages from forming. And so overall, I find that really it's husbands, uncles, brothers who retain higher status as experts, even when the women are inheritors and um, wives aunts, nieces, and sisters who have less economic power. So this is a study of um, uh, the non-random qualitative study of people who in the United States would qualify to be in the top 1% in net worth. Of course, notice that net worth, you know, income, not top 1% in income is around 400,000 these days in the United States, but net worth is about 10 million for whites. And it's 1.5 million for Black Americans. I don't actually report on Black Americans in this, this paper because I've interviewed two African-American husbands but not their wives yet, and data collection is ongoing. So it's through the strength of weak, weak ties. I asked almost everybody I know except for uh, students and um, in-laws if they know anybody. And I say I'm interested in the blessings and challenges of being financially comfortable or do they know anyone who's wealthy um, I tell them I change the, their names, their location, their business, it's deeply confidential. And I ask the person I meet, the, strength, the acquaintance, for example, if I could give a talk or if I meet people at a party, I ask them to ask their friend if it would be okay to pass my name along, uh, pass their name along to me, excuse me. And what I asked for at that point is just a phone call to explain the study that by agreeing to talk to me, they're not agreeing to be in the study, but only to learn more about it. Um, and I asked my friend to, or my acquaintance to wait until they see the person face-to-face, -face, ideally. It looks like about approximately 20% of people who are asked agree, which is you know not ideal, but in my defense, it appears to be higher than the random representative survey run by the Federal Reserve Board in the United States of the Survey of Consumer Finance, which is 15% for very high net worth people. 
So these are in-depth interviews, usually face-to-face, though a handful took place online. I bring them a gift of some kind. Uh, There are Democrats and Republicans. There are about eight people who are in a very progressive politics where they openly talk about wealth, who have a distinctive nature, but they're often very comfortable talking about money. It's a predominantly white sample. And uh, uh, these women are overwhelmingly very highly educated. And um, many of them have, all, all but one has a college degree and the one who doesn't is a, 90, a woman in her 90s. And many of them have advanced degrees. And so their median net worth is about 27.5 million, though of course the range is up to 150 million. And um, I focus here on 26 wealthy women and 11 of their partners. And there you see that uh, there were 18 married women and one cohabitating and the others were single, divorced or widowed. And I had three instances where the women were really active participants in making the money. Otherwise it was really spouses, fathers or extended kin. And I have both people who were Families were upwardly mobile and people what I call dynasty families, by which I mean it's fourth generation money. So in the interviews, women, very capable women would just proclaim ignorance. They would just say, I'm just not good at this. So here's an example of Mr. and Ms. Rogers. Ms. Rogers um, has a college degree before they moved to Puerto Rico where they're involved in real estate. She supervised over 400 people in her prior job. And um, which was uh, in also in real estate. And she did very, very elaborate contracts. And so I was talking about five years ago and I said, oh, do you know what your net worth was then? And she said, I mean, I wouldn't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't keep track of it like him. I do investments and I'm all in that. But he knows where we all are financially. He keeps his spreadsheets. So with the term his spreadsheets, she is delegating and deferring uh, expertise to him. And so she said, I I don't know how much money we have. I know we have a lot more now. Uh, Kirk knows to the penny. I think he told me we're close to around 15, 20 million. I don't know. And her husband provided a similar portrait. He says she's operations. Uh, We're very similar, except for I'm the one who sources the deals and I analyze them for the dollars. And then she analyzes them. Now she says, no one's going to like this type of house. It's missing. The rooms are too small. It's got a horrible view. There's something wrong with it. My, does, my wife picks the furniture and the floor panel, all that stuff. I, if we have to move some rooms around, she gets my input, but it's 90% my wife and 10% me. So they were buying and flipping houses in Puerto Rico. And, but there was also this socio-emotional tension. Now the, mother, the wife was very agitated and detailed about how the swimsuits and the way people revealed their bodies. She was deeply Christian. She found it offensive how the women in Puerto Rico walked around swimsuits. They agreed that her husband would turn his head to look away from when they were walking on the street. So she provided a lot of animation and detail at different parts in the interview, just not on this. But her husband, by contrast, was very excited. He leaned forward. He was very animated. And he was almost had tremendous confidence, as other research has shown. So he says, all I got to do at this point is cash in on my property. And I'm somewhere between 13.5 and I'm on track for 15 million by, you know, within the next six months. And he said pretty soon he'd be earning 2 million a year. He was a quote, just sitting on my butt. And he had a goal of 100 million. And so this social emotional dimension was also a very important part, which I saw over and over again in the couples I interviewed. 
Because of their uh, proclaimed ignorance, uh, women could be off by very significant amounts, such as 20 million or more. So in this interview with Ms. Samuels, who was a deeply religious Southern woman whose net worth was 70 million, her husband had died 15 years earlier. She knew exactly how much was in trust for each of the children, but she stumbled over this answer about when they had one business. When it was sold, what was it sold for? The shoe company, he uh, he branched out into land development. And um, so, but the company, I hope I'm not getting, I mean, just because the land was worth just as much as the company was, which really means the land was worth more. Oh, you know how this works. Oh, so I hope I'm telling you right. Oh, I'm telling you, isn't this awful? It was either, it was either 80 or 60, but I'm, I'm almost positive 80. So this kind of like, was it 80 million? Was it 60 million? This like not, you know, and of course, a lot of people are off in their household budgets, middle-class people, they often, it's not uncommon, but the, the, the magnitude of them. And also she was the, she was, the, she was the widow. She ran the, she ran the business and she was in control. And so people often stress their disengagement, even when on um, closer questioning, it became clear that they really knew quite a lot more. So here's Miss Saunders. She's in her 70s. She's widowed. She's sitting, we're sitting in her $3.5 million apartment. And she said, I've close to no interest in money. My husband say, well, you know, we really have to talk about our finances. And I'd say, you're absolutely right. We do. But it's just zero interest. It was very sweet of him. I guess he knew how sick he was. I didn't. But he went to the lawyer because he'd actually written down a paper to see how much money we had because he was concerned about me and I came across this piece of paper. Again, I just really didn't pay any attention to it. But then, you know, just a few minutes later in the interview, when I asked her about her purchase of her first apartment 40 years earlier, she could describe in great detail how much she put down, uh, what was the interest rate, uh, how much she sold it for, and she was, she says, and she said when they bought, she had an apartment, it increased in value, she sold it. So she said when they bought their apartment together, she was extremely proud of the fact that she was able to contribute 50%. So, but there was this sort of affect, the very first answer was, you know, I don't know anything. Uh, this pattern was not connected to inheritance. Again, we have small numbers here, but I have a woman, for example, who inherited Money, the money came from a dynasty family, um, but she turned over control to her husband, said her daughter, who's in her late 20s and has 60 million now, but obviously more is coming, partly because she's the only child. They had priceless artworks on the home walls of the house, which were actually not insured because they were so priceless. But in the family culture, the dad was the finance person. And, And so in this quote, she says it was a matter of interest before his uh, death in high school when he got very sick, though he was a very young man. Uh, My dad did the investings and was definitely sort of the primary sort of finance person in the family. I never got a sense that my husband was like excluded from finance or was kept hidden from her in any capacity. It was more, I think, if anything, you know, it was just doing something that my dad was like interested in. So that was his thing. So this was a matter of interest and uh, had developed expertise. We also found, I also found this pattern with siblings, for example, inheritance patterns. And again, it was linked to interest or sometimes expertise. 
So here is a, a lesbian woman who she has about 45 million in her trust as do her two other siblings. And it was a dynasty family. And uh, this is what she said. She said, Roy is the only one with an MBA. And he was also on the board because that family had a family foundation and he was interested and he has the MBA and he's more like my dad. And so when my dad was dying, he called me one night, one day, this might've been our last conversation. And he said, I put Roy in charge. If you have any problems, problems with money, go to Roy. And she said that our first trip back went up. When he said that I put Roy in charge, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about Roy in charge? And then I realized he was just t- just talking about money issues and Roy has all the connections with people in the foundation. And so it does make sense. So what I saw is sexism initially and oh, my back went up when he said that. Supposedly, he admires and respects me so much and thinks I'm brilliant. Why do I need my brother in charge? And she had a PhD. And then I realized what it was probably was just pragmatic. Maybe there was a tinge of sexism, but this was Roy's choice in life and Lent being this person. Would my dad have done it was me or Kimberly who was involved with that? Um, and, and so that's how she perceived it. She said, I, I didn't perceive she was treat, treated differently. Other families had similar uh, older couple, uh, older woman. She and her brother took care of their elderly parents who lived in place in a Manhattan apartment. She did the nurses, the care. He did the money. And that was, that was, that was other families had that as well. It was interesting as you probe deeper, there was some kind of push-pull of exclusion and disengagement. So here's a California couple. They have about $100 million, but it's in a business which would have to be sold to realize it. So the actual amount is a little bit unclear. And the, the money is family money from his family. And she, uh, she has a master's degree and knows quite a lot about philanthropy. And she would like the family to give more than they do to philanthropy. Um, but she says, she describes herself as not very interested, not very good at it. But then later in the interview, she said, we sold the house. We tried to sell the house without a realtor. And we tried to do it together. And the first attempt that the sale fell through, and I felt he blamed me for that. And then he went on to sell the house without me. And that, that was that hurt. And so she felt he was putting money over their relationship. But like he was saying, we are not capable of doing this without getting emotional. And then maybe there's some truth to that. But I also thought what's more important, our relationship or how much money we get from the sale. And I think he felt it was like less stressful for me and for him, for us not to work on it together. And, and that's probably, I think, you know, that was his main focus, making it less stressful. And she had wanted to accept a slightly lower offer from a family because she knew them and she thought they had a little kid and she thought it'd be better for him. And he wanted to have it be more money and then sell fell through. And she said, but she felt she was pushed out, quote unquote, because it was not her money. And when I get when I get voted out of big things like that or pushed out, I it does feel like, okay, this is not really my money. You know, this is like the family money. But then very almost immediately afterwards, she said, but oh, but I have my heads in the clouds and I'm just not very in. I'm not I don't know very much about it and I'm not very good at it. So this kind of vacillation of going back and forth. And her husband said, I'm very open about everything. And my wife is one of the best supporters and listeners. Like I I work at home and I run things by her, but she mostly just doesn't understand completely, but she's a great supporter. 
And when they recorded how much money they had, he said between 50 and 100. And she said it was somewhere between 25 and 30 million. So there was also just difference. And he actually shared with me the actual Excel file for the family. And, um, and so I, I'm, I'm more confident in his judgment of it. So, so the first point then is that women knew simply knew less. And then the second point is there's a sort of social emotional affect, though actually women knew a lot more after they talked about it, but then they went this vacillation. But the third point is that, um, you know, Rachel Sherman very interestingly says that it's kind of swimming upstream. It causes tension in relationships when women have more money than men. But I also found evidence that it just prevented marriage formation because it was so deeply stigmatized. So here is uh, Bruce Gottfried. He's in his 60s. He's a net worth of 12 million. He's from a dynasty family. When he was uh, younger, his parents divorced. His mother had inherited wealth and his grandparents had a very lavish estate. His father, who had met his mother when she was working as his assistant, he was an architect after she got out of college, he did not have wealth. And then when they divorced, there were these very difficult family dynamics where he would call up his children and ask them for money uh, and tell them not to tell their mother. And so there were just these difficulties in the family. Um, and so in college, he uh, was at an Ivy League institution and he was dating a daughter. I used the Rothschild as a pseudonym. And he said they had talked about their children and what they were going to name them. They were a very serious couple. And he said, we were the perfect couple. And her family invited him places. They went to the Caribbean. They went on trips. They went skiing over spring break. And he was invited to the summer at their summer house. And he had a very close relationship with her parents as well as her. And um, in their many conversations, she was very close to her mother. And also, like a lot of people, she had a special loyalty to her name which you do see in some of these families that they have a very close relationship with their name. And she, she would ask me things like, if we get married, would you think about changing your name to Rothschild? And he said, I go, not really. And I said, but you don't have to change your name to Gottfried, but I'm not changing my name to Roth, Roth, Rothschild. And so he said, two years into it, so he said, I'm not going to make the same mistake my father did. I've seen this movie. It's like, I know where it's going. And he said, I just, I just can't have your parents paying for me all the time and stuff like that. And so he was remarkably direct about, he, quote, did not want to be a guy married to a woman wealthier than myself. So two years into it, I realized I'm being kept, you know, that is what my father felt like. Is it worth it? So I began refusing invitations and refusing things, and ultimately we broke up. I saw that I didn't want to be a guy married to a woman wealthier than myself. And that wasn't a sexist comment, I don't believe, or an anti-feminist comment. It was a realistic comment because I'd never situation, never seen a situation where the man where it works. I mean, maybe Philip and Queen Elizabeth work, but he walks four steps behind her, right? 
So he ended up marrying somebody who had less money than he did. And other families uh, echoed this view. So uh, Larry Nimitz, who I interviewed, uh, who had was from a wealthy family. And, but his father, at the time that his parents had gotten married 30 years earlier, in current dollars, her father, his father had around 14 million, which clearly puts him in the top 1% of net worth. But the mom was from a dynasty family and she had more than 200 million. And he says, I grew up with two parents who were very dedicated to their work in a way I thought was normal, but now realize it's very unusual. My father says he hadn't missed a day of work in 40 years. And two years at, two hours after I was born, I think the doctor said, your son is okay. They drove to the airport to be in Boston the next day. And that's just how it's always been. He always tries to catch up with my mother, I think financially. And otherwise, knowing it's impossible, he just doesn't want to be the tag along husband. And I, he was, this man was getting a PhD and I asked him if his father would come to graduation. And he said, he paused and then he said, I hope so. But he said with a sad smile, it's just, it's impossible for his father to catch up. His father now has around 90 million to hundred million, but he can't catch up. And, and furthermore, they both do deals but the father does, you know, very big deals. I mean, financial deals, but the mother does even bigger deals with more companies and more quickly. And they had had a, a prenuptial, um, which uh, had a sunset clause in it, the parents where he learned about on their 30th wedding anniversary. But this uh, issue is father working, working, working to try to catch up. And then, but younger people also reported these kind of patterns. Uh, here's Peyton Stedman, who is 26 years old. Her father uh, became quite wealthy when she was in high school. So when she grew up, it, she was not, which it, it turns out to make a difference. And so now she has a $15 million trust fund, but her, partly because her mother insisted she worked. She worked and she made 35000 a year, which was less than her trust fund threw off every year. And she lived in this uh, very elegant, very, uh, you know, very uh, high floor apartment on a very expensive street. And sometimes people from work would come over from her job in the world, like making 35000 They would all be kind of looking around. She didn't invite them over to swim in the pool. And she said, I just think the guys don't want the girl to have more money than them, just in essence. I don't know if it's they don't want it or it just makes them uncomfortable. And I think that's just the root of it. And I probably haven't figured out quite a handle it myself or how to bring it up or whether to bring it up or not. And obviously, I don't want to go into the details with people, but definitely people are like, oh, you live here. Okay. And so this idea, and so here we have both men and women in this dance, this interactional process where men just consider it to be intolerable to be with women who have more money than they and can impede a formation of marital relationships. And so um, in the paper, I talk about some other families where they have had that happen. 
And you do see, you know, my three cases or four cases, you do see women reporting that men act out. For example, I interviewed both the husband and the wife of this couple, both of whom were born in India, both of whom had immigrated, both of whom were now citizens. And she was a very high-level finance person. And he had had a job, which he spent a lot of time talking about, but it hadn't been for, had been many years since he'd worked. But he told, she told me that she, they had 9 million, but then he told me she thinks that we have 9 million, but really we have 12 million. So he was hiding $3 million from her. And uh, they lived in California. And so he just, and then another, another couple, uh, another woman had been married and she was from, uh, she was a single, she was a woman who was now divorced, had been raised in a divorced family herself. And as a child, she lived with her mother, but her father took her to very lavish events all the time. But they, both her mother and her father lied to her and told her that she wasn't going to inherit anything. And then she inherited uh, what the equivalent of about $35 million. And she's used the word emasculates when talks about her husband. And she felt that uh, she had been the victim of domestic violence and she had a prenuptial, but for various reasons hadn't held up because she'd mixed money together. And so in these relatively unusual cases, uh, men, women reported that men acted out if women had more money. And so um, the point here then is the status is not only a position, but it's a process. So to be sure, there are structural aspects. I interviewed a family where the woman said that her father, when her brother was born, who was younger than she was, she said the three men that worked together, they got together and structured this deal for their firstborn sons. Like our first sons, yeah. So my brother came into a source of passive income early on that made it so we didn't have to work. And even though she and her brother are very close, she still to this day does not know how much money her brother has. But she knew if he built this, bought this one property, it was going to, you know, kick off enough money for that he really didn't have to work. And so these, this is a, pro, so it's both a status and a process. And it's a process that's sustained by both men and women together. And so I think in addition to the very valuable work we have on outcomes, we want to look more deeply at the role of cultural and social processes in sustaining these economic relationships within wealthy families. And it points to the interactional work people do, and particularly women downplaying their expertise. Now, each and every one of these women signed a, a tax form every year. And on the tax form on the first page, it says what your uh, adjusted gross income is. And they also had trust in their names, and they knew that there was a family. Often there were a lot of people involved, and the information is pretty complex. But it's not that they weren't exposed to the information, but as they said, oh, my head's in the clouds and it just didn't stick. And as a result, women knew less. They had less economic expertise and uh, they were less, they were more just apathetic. They were less interested and, and also it impeded marriage formation. And so I think there are implications for inequality. Um, we know that women would like to give more to philanthropy than men. And in these, some of these families I interviewed, um, including the family where the, they bought the house and then it fell through, 
she wanted to give a lot more to philanthropy because they were not very philanthropic at all. They gave less than $20,000 away, although their, their assets were over $50 million. But her husband was more focused on making money, making money, money, and we can give it away later. And so women have less knowledge and they have less control. And uh, if they were to be divorced, they would be more dependent, certainly on the male members of their families. And then, of course, they're also role modeling behaviors for children, which is contributing to uh, the perpetuation of various gender norms. And so in the end, today, these days, we have men in control. We have fathers, uncles, and brothers who are making decisions and wives, nieces, and sisters who are deferring. And both men and women participate in sustaining these patterns. And so we have to look at inequality and status between men and women in the family, although men, family is a very powerful economic institution. We want to look more at those economic dynamics and in intimate lives and how they both reflect and promote gender inequality in the broader culture. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Annette. This was such an interesting, uh, so many things uh, to, to, to pick from here. I can't wait to see what the discussants um, will make of it. it um, well, it's, it's not for me to say, but I, I found it very, very interesting and it really spoke to a lot of themes that are, are familiar to me and are just, well, especially the comment on uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. <laughs> that was really, really quite priceless. <laughs> so without further ado, I believe we have Dr. Aliyah Raya going first. Is that correct? Hi, yeah, here I am. I will just try to share a screen because I have, hang on, sorry. I just thought I have a slide to share, which would be good to have up while I speak. Sorry, just bear with me for one second. And I think, let me just make this here. Are you able to see it? Yes. You are, okay. Um, so just keep this in mind. I'm gonna have to take this away for a technical reason, but just keep this in mind because I'm gonna mention these, um, uh, these books and these references. So what I wanna start off with saying is, firstly, Annette, thank you so much for this amazing talk. Before I get started with more substantive comments about the importance of wealth dynamics for understanding um, mechanisms of inequality, I want to say a few words about the methods. Um, I'm a sociologist, but I'm in the methodology department here at the LSE, and I feel as though it would be remiss of me um, not, to, not to kind of make some methodological comments. So first, I just want to say that this data, this access to these wealthy families is really incredible. These are families in the, you know, worth, as Dr. Laura pointed out, in the tens of millions of dollars, talking about very kind of very personal financial details. This is incredible. Um, and these are such rich conversations. You know, when I teach um, qualitative research methods here, one of the things I'm always trying to impress on students is how a key strength of interview methods is really about getting people to talk to you about their lives in specifics and details. And just one wonderful example of that 
these kinds of specifics that we look for as qualitative researchers was when one of the women talks about how she has her head in the clouds when it comes to anything finance related. Um, this was such a wonderfully evocative quote, and this was just one of many. Okay, so what I'd like to do now is take a few moments to quickly place this important work in the broader context um, of emerging research on insecurity and inequality and gender, because I think that can help foreground some of the ways in which uh, Dr. Leroux's study is so important um, and to facilitate a discussion as we sort of carry on. So firstly, I really appreciate this uh, turning the focus from income to wealth in a context of insecurity and wide inequalities a focus on wealth is really key. This is an argument that my colleague, uh, Megan Tobias Neely at the Copenhagen Business School has made particularly persuasively in her work, including her recent book, Hedged Out, which is one of the ones I just showed you um, quickly. In a context where unemployment is acutely uncertain and acutely prevalent and the privileged feel that their social class position is consistently under threat with a sort of acute fear of falling, this is very prevalent. This is um, something that researchers like Michelle Lamont, like, uh, Marianne Cooper have sort of um, pointed out that this fear of falling dynamic um, is really evident in pretty affluent families. This is sort of when dynamics around wealth become especially important to pay attention to in this kind of context of inequality meeting insecurity. Um, even in sort of families that are less affluent than the ones uh, Dr. Leroux studies, wealth or the total resource base, for example, that families have access to is really important for being able to contend with hurdles in life given the erosion of um, sort of social protection and safety nets in many places, and certainly in the US where the study is based. For example, um, Fabian Pfeffer at the University of Michigan co-authors have shown that grandparental help serves as sort of privatized insurance for many families. Um, so this is the idea that, you know, if you lose a job or if um, so basically something bad economically happens that you have access to grandparents and to um, sort of financial help through them to so that the bumps in the road are sort of smoothed out for you. And, you know, um, this idea of these are the conversations that happen on a daily basis in cities like London, like New York and San Francisco, when it comes to housing, for example, like who are the people who can actually afford to live here? Who are the people who can buy a house here? And as colleagues um, here in the sociology department, for example, Sam Friedman um, have shown it's the bank of mom and dad, um, as uh, Sam and co-authors call it, that really help with these key purchases, which are quite important um, to basically building wealth, um, and, but also widening social class inequalities, as it turns out. Um, my point is, um, what I'm trying to say is that this attention to wealth dynamics is a really welcome one because this is so crucial for mechanisms of socioeconomic uh, inequality broadly. Um, again, I just want to emphasize that this is especially important right now because economic inequality is so high. Um, and it's really widened considerably in the last decade. So this is really when um, a focus on elites in particular, a focus on wealth, um, I would say is necessary. Another point that I want to make is about sort of gender and wealth dynamics in families, um, especially in terms of, you know, what Dr. Lord talks about the gendered expertise of um, financial management, essentially. So a lot of what's kind of received um, significant effect uh, attention in sort of prior research on affluent families is much more about um, gendered expertise around caregiving. That's been the focus of a lot of people's work. So this kind of um, look at uh, financial expertise is especially welcome. Um, attention to wealth dynamics is, you know, really important for understanding gender inequalities in families. And um, of course, here, Dr. Leroux has focused on status inequalities and deference within families. So this idea of sort of men being the economic agents um, 
even in cases when women are the inheritors. Um, I especially appreciate a sense of which partner is the inheritor to get a better grasp of how dynamics amongst couple are amongst couples are shapes are shapes. Sorry, I'd like to situate this within a broader context. In a study of married U.S. couples, um, in the top one percent of um, of families uh, that was published in the American Sociological Review, uh, Jill Yavorsky and co-authors found that the that of the couples who are in the top one percent of U.S. household incomes. Um, in 95% of the cases, it is men's income that's put, that puts these families in the top 1%. So this research is kind of really, um, Yavorsky and co-authors, their research is really kind of telling us where the source of um, sort of economic inequality also is. So I think that's um, useful background to kind of keep in mind. Um, this is also important because, you know, and this is something Dr. Leroux kind of nodded to, uh, women in this echelon have often been presumed to be the ones who are best suited to break uh, glass ceilings in the world of work. And by some, they've been presumed to lead the way for gender egalitarian practices. I mean, these are the women, for example, um, who have who typically have the most continuous employment histories and things of that nature, who have very high, very prestigious degrees, who have the capacity um, to basically create wealth in a way. Um, but of course, scholars have shown that it's in these very elite families that very traditional gendered behaviors continue to have a powerful hold. So Pamela Stone's work is classic in this and showing how wealthy families where women themselves often had high paying jobs, they ended up leaving those to manage childcare because of norms of intensive mothering, which put the onus on mothers to focus on caregiving. And Stone's study sort of really showed that it's not that these high earning women wanted to opt out of paid work, but rather the absence of childcare uh, support by the state and the fact that most were married to men who earned even more than them, combined with intensive mothering uh, norms to make them the sort of default caregivers. These women opted out not out of an abundance of choice. They were very, they were very well off in a Pamela Stone study, but even they didn't have that kind of an abundance of choice. They opted out because of a paucity of it. Um, in another study, which Dr. Lero mentioned, um, which I think is just kind of worth highlighting a bit more because it really brings together this idea of insecurity and wealth and how that really pulls out gender dynamics in uh, families. Marianne Cooper at Stanford studies very affluent families for whom the preoccupation with the sphere of falling was really stark. Cooper's study included families with net worth of tens of millions um, who still felt insecure. So that that was um, that's a study where this one group of people was most comparable um, to the to the group that Dr. Leroux is talking about. Um, Cooper study, uh, you know, so they were really kind of worried that their affluence would not get passed on to their children. And what Cooper shows is that, is that these women who were high earners themselves stopped working to be able to closely monitor their children's progress. They wanted nothing less than perfection from their children when it came to academic achievement, but also extracurriculars and excelling at, you know, violin or whatever it might be, and also excellent social aptitude. So this striving for perfection was why these mothers became, as Cooper calls it, the emotional warriors of the family on who on whom the fear that children would not be able to replicate the parents' financial and social successes sort of fell. And so it was these mothers and kind of, you know, millionaire families who often stopped participating in paid work to focus on monitoring every detail of their children's lives. And, you know, these kinds of processes, this kind of stickiness of gender that Dr. Leroux referenced, um, you can see that in sort of my study as well, um, where I... Um, basically have data from pretty affluent families. These are not families that are as wealthy as the ones in Dr. Leroux's study or the ones in uh, Dr. Cooper's study, but they're, you know, they're in the top sort of 
10 to 15% of US households. Um, and what I find, and um, I basically have, um, it's a study of dual earner families where one partner is unemployed, a professional middle-class sample. And what I find is that when the man loses a job, um, his kind of unemployment is framed as this major problem um, in sort of, that needs to kind of, you know, uh, be rectified as soon as possible. And it needs to be rectified by the man's focus on job searching. With women, that's not the case. Even when women have been the primary sort of earners in terms of bringing in more income. So I oversampled for, for uh, women who earn more than their husbands in a way um, than is the case, you know, sort of nationally. Um, what I found is that, you know, their income was sort of downplayed. It was sort of like, well, we don't really need this to kind of manage um, in the household. Instead, women's unpaid work, their caregiving, um, looking after relatives, that kind of stuff, that was what was emphasized. So the stickiness of gender is really kind of... Um, I think an important part of how gender inequality is kind of reproduced in a social class that has the resources to kind of um, append gender inequality in a way. Um, and yet we don't see that happening. Um, a few other things just before I end, within this sort of broader context of research on insecurity and inequality, gender and wealth, this work by Dr. Leroy is really important in informing us about the gendered expertise of financial management within families and how it produces these, these sort of ways of being, this deference and the status amongst couples. And, you know, one of the things that struck me is that, you know, um, if you think about interviews as a performance that potentially wealthy women um, that Dr. Loro spoke with or wealthy men uh, that she spoke with, if it's a performance, at what point does the performance actually become the way of being? Right. Like, I think that's something to kind of uh, consider a little bit. Um, and what I hope is, you know, as we sort of continue the discussion, is we have a chance to discuss uh, this issue of who holds what expertise in these wealthy families, how that matters for inequality in some of the ways that Dr. Leroux indicates, which I think um, are worth probing further in our discussion. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you so much, Alia. So many interesting comments and uh, so much to think about. Uh, so without wasting any time, I'll hand over to Dr. Sibyl Galak, please. Thank you. Um, I'm very happy to discuss today this talk by Annette Laro. This work gives considerable support to a number of research studies conducted in France. And these studies are consistent with two results uh, presented by Annette Laro. The first concerns the gender division of labor of maintaining and displaying social status in upper class families with economic capital. The first French research um, uh, I will mention is by Camille Erlangiret. Uh, she conducted fieldwork with households subject to wealth tax, uh, which Emmanuel Macron has since abolished. These households own, by definition, more than 3 million uh, euros. Her results are very similar to those of Annette Laro. Uh, it is the men who have an overall view of their assets and who make a whole series of decisions concerning their management. Uh, the women she met uh, regularly stated their ignorance and incompetence in this matter. 
and Camille Lingiret also uh, uses statistical data from the French Wealth Survey. The first question of the survey is to designate the person most knowledgeable of the management of household assets. And Camille, um, so that this person will be the one to respond to the rest of the questionnaire. And Camille Erlangeret finds that the richer the household, the less the members of the couple answer together and the more it is a man who answers alone to the interviewer. Uh, among households with more than 5 million euros, it's the man who answers alone in more than eight cases out of 10. Camille Erlangiret concludes that this is the men who are in charge of making the wealth work in this family. Her research can be matched with those of Lorraine Bozoul, Mm, uh, uh, who wrote a thesis on housing practices, uh, lifestyles, and gender relations among the private upper classes. She calls private upper classes the fraction of the upper classes in which men hold positions of management in the private sector and where families are more endowed with economic than cultural capital. Lorraine Bozoul shows that, that in these families, women are first and foremost responsible for the children's rearing, whose education is a signal of the parent's social status, and that they are also in charge of consumption. They do the shopping and cooking, organize dinners with friends, buy clothes and furniture, and decorate the house. And these studies does describe a gender division of uh, economic labor in order to maintain a, and improve the family's social status. Mer men are specialized in wealth management, while women are specialized in expense. But as Annette Laro points out, and this is the second result uh, I wanted to highlight, this gender division of economic labor in the family does not simply refer to complementary roles. These roles are hierarchized and correspond to unequal power over, over wealth. In France, Lorraine Bozoul highlights the fact that women are in charge of purchasing goods that signal the high social status of all family members, but they are considered as the only ones responsible for excessive spending, bad deals or follies that they may have made. Camille Erlangeret shows that men do not tell their wives or sisters about the bad investments they have made. Um, the social prestige associated with economic success falls on them, but not their mistakes. In the end, Camille Erlangiret speaks of property without appropriation. For women, they do not have the same power over wealth as men and do not benefit from it in the same way. In our research with Céline Bessière, we write that in the family economic institution, while women work for free, men accumulate. Men are the privileged bearers of the family's social status, and as a result, they receive specific assets in inheritance, uh, often earlier and of greater economic and symbolic value. This is particularly true for the first-born sons. Their wealth is particularly protected in the event of a breakup or divorce because they seem better able to keep it and pass it on. Men and women do not have the same relationship to family wealth and the social status it confers. From this point of view, the way Annette Laro proposes to think of social status as a process which is embedded in gender relations 
is particularly enlightening. So I wanted to ask you first how you see the relationship between family social status and individual social status. The moment of marital separation or widowhood poses this problem in a clear way. What social status separ uh, Sorry, what social status can men and women expect after long years of joint production of a family social status? And the law and its professionals are involved. In France, as we try to show it with Céline Bessière, this intervention legitimates unequal sharing of assets and the, consequence, uh, the consequences it may have in terms of living conditions and social status. With the, with the help of the The professionals' information asymmetry is transformed into wealth inequality. In your paper, you described above all the joint production of a social status. Are the women you met clear about what their prenuptial contract would mean in the event of divorce or widowhood? You have met both widows and divorced women. How do they tell about these moments of negotiation and uh, their relationships? and those of their spouses with the lawyers, how do these relationships impact the, pro the processes which, as you say, sustain their respective and inequal social status? With Céline Bessière, we are trying to link the gendered roles of individuals in their family of origin, which depend on the sex category assigned at birth, but also on the composition of the siblings and the rank of birth, to the economic domination relations that we observe in couples. It's very helpful for us to have the analysis of a sociologist who has taken an interest in child socialization and in the couple and the family as economic institution, which is very rare in France. One of your interviewees seems more interested than the others in managing the family's wealth, and she's an only child. Do you observe differences in the division of economic labor within couples according to the place of women and men in their siblings? I also wanted to ask you how to think about this gender division of economic labor in families in various social classes. Do you have any suggestions for thinking about how family, men's and women's social status structure each other according to social classes and class fractions, according to levels of economic capital and cultural capital and their relative weight? And you note, in conclusion, if women had more status in economic arenas, there is a possibility that it would lead families to give away more assets rather than continue to build assets, thereby tamping down the growth in wealth inequality. But in France, gender wealth gap has recently increased, I mean doubled in 20 years. This increase goes hand in hand with the increase in inequalities between rich and poor households, because today, in fact, the wealth inequality is increasing. What does it do, in your opinion, to gender inequalities? And this is my last question. You write in the paper, by affirming their own disinterest, lack of knowledge and lack of skin in household wealth management, women also affirm their husband's expert status as knowledgeable, expert and high status economic actors. And you note, there are strong social barriers against the formation of marriages where women would have more economic power than that than their future husbands. This reminds me of Michel Boson's research on couple formation and homogamy in France in the 1980s. 
based on statistical and interview data. He noted that women gave specific importance to having an older but also taller spouse or partner. He concluded, it's the man's domination that it establishes the woman's status. Accepting an inversion of appearances suggests that it is the woman who dominates, which paradoxically lowers her social status. She feels inferior to be with an inferior man. In La Domination Masculine, Bourdieu relies on this work to talk about consent to masculine domination. This idea of women's consent to masculine domination has led to intense debates in France. Do you think it's necessary to speak of women's consent to masculine domination to understand women's involvement in the processes of maintaining and improving family social status, particularly in its economic dimension? Many, many thanks in advance for your answers and many thanks for your presentation. It was so enlightening to discover the results of this new research and your analysis of these issues. Thank you so much, Sibyl. Um, and thank you to our speaker and our two discussants. And uh, I believe it's now my time to open for questions from the floor. We have quite a number of questions, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to um, really select and uh, only a few. Um, Professor Laura, would you prefer to take the questions singularly or would you like me to take two or three together? Uh, it's up to you, um, whatever you think is best. Sure. I'll, I'll start. Um, there's a very interesting question here and it's from an undergraduate student asking, I was wondering whether the social and cultural processes that are sustaining men's position as key economic agents is due to the fact that the broader economic system was built to serve a very select few? If so, does this call for a shift in capitalism? We'll start for, with a, a brave uh, question. <laughs> well, um, thanks to both the discussants for their excellent comments, which were very helpful, and also this extremely interesting question. Uh, and some ways to go to uh, what Professor Kolak said as well. Um, in the U.S., we don't have one set of inheritance laws. We have 50 set of inheritance laws that vary quite a lot by state by state. And in many states, the amount of money that people accumulate in their, during the course of their marriage is subject to uh, being shared um, if there's a divorce. But the money that people bring into the marriage is not shareable. But uh, people don't always tell the truth in divorce settlements. And in addition, uh, one of the things that we found was that I found that was in the dynasty families, families that had three or four generations of wealth, there was a much more open and very direct conversation about the value of prenuptials with a very strong expectation that as a loyal family member, you would have a prenuptial. But in the upwardly mobile families with, who had their who made their money, the parents were in their 50s or 60s and their children were in their 30s, there was not that same comfort with it. And so to be sure, all of the social dynamics are heavily dependent on the state and the way the state organizes uh, inheritance patterns. Uh, someone was telling me just the other day in Argentina, families must distribute the money to the, to let's say a husband dies, to the wife and the children. They may not disinherit children, but that's not the case in the United States. 
And so um, obviously wealth patterns, and of course, and I think one of the reasons the gender gap has doubled is because of the rising stock market. While these people have money in the stock market, and we just had a tremendous run up in wealth in the last um, decade or two, and that's going to widen all the gaps in gender inequality, which is connected to how markets and taxation policies are, are formed by the state. Of course. Thank you very much. Um, so I have a question that I'm going to take uh, chair's privileges and slightly shorten, but fundamentally is a question about whether thinking about intergener- intergenerational transfers of family fortunes, do we think that male and female offspring get treated differently in the process from the perspective of parents and grandparents, um, so thereby grooming them into uh, from early childhood to expect to be treated in a certain way? The families I interviewed had a very strong uh, commitment to the principle of equity. So uh, although there, in, and in general, many families, it was almost like a religion that each child would be equally treated under, the, under inheritance patterns. There were some families that gave children, adult children money as they saw fit and they saw it more as, as a need-based system. Um, so, but I think the thing is that there was tremendous silence in money around families, around wealth. And in the families that were, had a business, then often there was more open conversation. But the reason, how I got into this study was I was doing a study called Choosing Homes, Choosing Schools about how parents decide where to live. And I was interviewing people about how they bought their first house to, and how they sent their kids to a school district. And it turned out a lot of people had gotten down payments in this middle class thing, but they did, literally didn't know what their siblings had received. And so even in middle class families, often the silence is quite remarkable. And, uh, and so, but with family foundations and family businesses and family, uh, a well-established, what I call dynasty family, there's a little bit more openness about that. But, but sometimes, um, for example, let's say there's an older son and he has children and then a much younger son has children. Uh, there's a difference in the amount because the, the, the amount that the older child, because of differences in aging and how much the money grows over time. And some families, they harmonize that, but in most families, they do not, that I've interviewed. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the work of uh, Silvia Yanagizako on this, on wealthy families in, I think it was in the northeast of Italy. She was talking about working in the silk trade and mm-hmm. how the, 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 women, the, the women of the families were, although the law in Italy says that they were supposed to inherit, just like in Argentina, along the same lines, mm-hmm. but they would be sort of socialized into not asking for their share. And I to see. be taken care of in different ways, but the business stayed with the men. So I, uh, I have another question from a student in sixth form asking, I wanted to ask if this, the kind of relationships I suppose we're talking about, differs with the working class, those that are not from elite families. And if so, how does this differ? Yes, I mean, it was very interesting to me that I interviewed some men in their 60s and 70s who had literally grown up with food shortages, or they told in great detail 
um, going to the Salvation Army to get food or wearing a feed sack as the clothing. And yet now they had, you know, $100 million. I mean, I didn't really think people like this existed in America. It's so rare, but they do. Um, You know, like a lot of people who grew up poor, sometimes they had legacies about trauma from poverty. Um, And many of the families were completely very mindful of money, even though, for example, I have, I didn't really talk about in the paper, but I have, have, I'm trying to have four case studies and one family I've interviewed the patriarch and his wife and each of the adult, three of the adult sons and their wives. And this family, I'm giving a gift of $2,500. You would think with the family assets of all together over a hundred million dollars, they would hardly care, but they do care. And they find that gift meaningful and having been very frugal, some of the families are very frugal. Um, and so I just think that for the working class families, you know, like a lot of people have shown, including Sam Friedman and others, People who grow up in a different class culture often are keenly aware of it at the time, but many, uh, but but the people who grew up with dynasty families, the the norms have changed. So they grew up with housekeepers and gardeners and chauffeurs and in home care, and very almost nobody has that anymore now in the families I interviewed, and so there the display of wealth is also different and it's less public in that way than compared to when they were children. Makes sense. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I have another couple of questions, which I'm going to group together. um, And they touch upon what you mentioned about women's interest in philanthropy and specifically women being more interested in philanthropy than their husbands. Could you speak to that a little bit, please? Well, there's a, a university has a lily, uh, Institute on Philanthropy, and they have some descriptive reports that show that women give more than men. And it's interesting in this Jansen family where I described, with the, where I interviewed the three sons and their wives, uh, two of the wives really wanted to give more money, but they just felt that they couldn't. They told me that privately. Their husbands were not particularly, the families were not particularly philanthropic. They had a family foundation, and there's something called a second to die policy where you put money in a account and then when both people die, then it goes to charity and it grows in the meantime. So they have a 5 million second to die policy to, to seed the family foundation. Um, but, you know, it's this thing about for many families, control is connected to blood bloodlines. And so um, in-laws are really excluded from family conversations very directly. And families are often very direct about this. And um, and so even though the woman, the head and clouds woman had a master's degree in social, which trained her to be involved in nonprofits and she was interested in being in philanthropy. And her husband told me that she was active in philanthropy, the patriarch and his wife and other, nobody in the family knew that. And so her role was invisible within the family that she was taking this philanthropic role. How interesting. How really very interesting. Um, So thank you. I have another question. And I'm not sure if maybe, uh, I I suppose the questions are for our speaker, but if the discussants want to jump in, by all means, feel feel free um, and unmute yourselves. And I'm sure we can run it in in, in this way between us. I'll, I'll, I'll pick another question. 
And he said, based on your findings, women often express discomfort and insecurity with regard to wealth management. Do you think that this is also an expression of discomfort with wealth more generally, or solely a discomfort with handling these affairs in their role as women and wives? This is from an undergraduate student. It's very interesting. Uh, Rachel Sherman's a very important and influential book, Uneasy Street, which is based in Manhattan, described many people who were very uncomfortable with their wealth, and they took elaborate steps to hide it. I didn't really find that in my sample. I found people who were quite comfortable and quite pleased and proud of their wealth, and they had signs of consumption. Um, but they tended not to think that they were wealthy. So even... I interviewed a man in the West Coast who has $100 million and who's very philanthropic, um, but he said he's not wealthy. And he said because he doesn't have a plane. And so having a plane is considered to be, because you have to have a plane, you have to store it, you have to have gas, you maintain it. A boat doesn't do it. Three houses doesn't do it. But everyone seemed to think a plane was a definition of wealthier, being a billionaire. And truthfully, they're looking up a very steep curve. I mean, they're not a billionaire. They have $100 million. Compared to $5 billion, it's nothing. And so the, the inequality among the top 1%, they're very, they're very aware of it. And so it's hard for them to... But he also said that he had lived in Manhattan. And he said, in Manhattan, you need like a lot of money to get on the program, except for the Metropolitan Opera or the symphony. And he said like $3,000 in Seattle will get you on the program. So he said there wasn't the same culture of giving in the elite in some parts of the country compared to others. Of course. I, I feel here uh, it's, um, I just want to, to bring in the work of Katerina Hecht, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, but she mm -hmm. looked exactly at this kind of dynamics and at how people seem to always look up and never quite consider themselves rich because they're always looking mm -hmm. towards the top. So it's a shame she can't be here with us um, tonight. But that work was clearly, um, you know, in support of what you were saying. I was wondering if our discussants wanted to jump in and maybe say something to these various questions. I just have a small, like, I just have more questions. Um, rather than a response, if that's okay, like I'll, I'll just throw it out there and then we'll see. So I'm so, um, I'm quite surprised by this, this idea that sort of cons a conspicuous consumption takes the form of not having housekeepers or help of that kind. And I'm just curious to know more about that. Like who's doing that then? Like, is that, is that happening in the sort of very gendered way we would imagine? Or how is that rationalized, I guess? Um, because to me, that strikes me as different than sort of, you know, not buying like, a, I don't know, a diamond bracelet or whatever it might be on a weekly mm -hmm. basis. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, often the women, you know, the second shift, um, Arlie Hook, she'll describe the family, the Stein family, and she had a bunch of helpers. She had, you know, often they'll have tutors and they'll have people who clean the house and they'll have people who watch the kids. Um, they'll have caterers who will fund a, a dinner, but they don't have live-in help in the same way, which is now considered, I mean, as far as I can tell, it's considered taboo, you know, to have live-in help. Even people with very, um, you know, I mean, sometimes people have people who run a house. They have three houses and they have a house. They need people who will run it because they're not there all the time. But that's different. There's more, I think, notion of um, it's like intensive mothering, basically. You know, uh, as Bianchi and other people shows, as expectations for women have gone up, 
for uh, the sacred notion of mothers being present with children um, and compared to earlier decades. So I found another interesting question. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. It's Setin Selik from Department of Sociology, University of Istanbul, Turkey. So um, the question is, I wonder if Professor Loro could have any chance to observe how these highly educated, economically powerful, emancipated women negotiate their superior to many outside, in quote, position with in quotes, inferior to their partners on the inside position, which I suppose it's a little bit what Ostrander was talking about so many, well, Mm -hmm. four decades ago now. So the question continues, does this not cause a double consciousness, again in inverted quotes, that conflicts in their identity somehow and disturbs them and makes them feel uneasy in various ways? Um, That's very interesting and it's possible that Uh, Professor Galak from her work in France might have insights into the women I saw were not particularly aware of class. I mean, we have a language for race in America. We don't have much of a language for social class. So they were not um, particularly forthcoming about their superior social positions. If anything, there was an effort to make egalitarian their relationships with all their, their fleet, their many workers by acting like they're sort of friends with them a little bit. And also they were, uh, I mean, uh, Professor Galak has this very interesting work on social homogamy when people marry and people in general marry like Mary's like, but women do marry people who are old. There's very strong taboo about women marrying men who are shorter than themselves, even today. And there's a famous picture of Princess Diana and Prince Charles, and they're made, they're made to, they were the same height, but they were made to look that on a stamp, that she was much shorter than he was, and also slightly older. Um, and so, but in this cases, um, women talked very strongly about egalitarian beliefs, and so they expressed it as interest rather than um, anything else. Of course. Uh, Sibyl, would you like to jump in? I'm sorry. It's very difficult for me to improvise in English and uh, it's the evening, it's hard. Uh, but um, in France, we see that women are very uncomfortable uncof- with um, inequality and they feel responsible for their situation, for, for their economic situation. And uh, in couples, um, they... Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. In couples, men and women um, uh, share the expenses uh, in in equal equal shares, but women uh, have uh, lower incomes. So at the end, they are they are poorer uh, because they want to 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 be. Uh, they want equality, and uh, so this uh, this idea, this responsibility for equality. Um, makes inequality. How very interesting. And I really like the word, the, the word that um, Professor Leroy used of this dance around gender and wealth and family and kinship and status. And it really feels like that's what we are getting to as, as qualitative 
social scientists, that is really what we have to, to grapple with, is that this kind of structural realities of the millions or sometimes billions of pounds that these families have in assets, and yet the way they they behave is not remotely, uh, it's not something you can determine or predetermine or, or, or read. It is truly a dance. I really like that, that word. Um, so other questions? Um, let me... See, I think I'm going to ask one myself. I think I'm going to take that as a privilege. And I would, I was fascinated by your remark about the loyalty to the name. And I thought that was, uh, well, it's something that was familiar to me from my own work. Uh, I was very surprised by people introducing themselves as being fifth generation. Such a, such a bizarre thing to, to say as, you know, when we often ask as a first question, so tell me about yourself or how did you come to be here? You know, you leave it open so that they can frame it. And I'm fifth generation, whatever the name was. So do you have any, any other examples of, of people trying to hold on to the name or? Yeah. I'm so curious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's no longer taboo for women to have their own name, not to take the weapon. You know, when I'm, I'm in my late 60s and so when I was growing up, it was very unusual for women to have their own name. But now that's not the case. So in some ways, it doesn't create the same level of, I mean, God, Mr. Gottfried was talking about, you know, he was in his 60s now. This was a while ago that he was insulted that, that she would want to have her. And she wanted him to take her name. And um, but I interviewed a young, the young woman who was 26, the one who said, uh, guys don't like girls who have too much money. Um, she had a tremendous sense of loyalty and pride in her father who had, who had made a huge accomplishment. And, uh, and so people often just have, if, if their relationships are harmonious and they're not always, one of the things that happens is a lot of these very elite people are treated with tremendous deference by not just their family, by everybody by their personal assistants, by their workers, by the taxi drivers, by the hotel. Everybody is treating them as if they are incredibly special, except for their kids. Their kids don't do that. <laughs> and sometimes their spouses. And so sometimes relationships with kids can be quite strained. And partly, especially these fathers are used to being treated like they're really very, very special and their kids are like not having it. And so there's often very strained relationships among you know, the, not always, but it's not unusual in families. And so, but families often specialize in a, in a family identity. They'll specialize, say, in the symphony, or they'll specialize in environmental issues, or they'll specialize in some kind of uh, symbolic role, which everybody, and then often like the grandmother will have one event a year, and everybody's expected to come. Every uncle, every aunt, every cousin, every grandchild, they're all supposed to be there for the matriarch special philanthropic moment. And so you, you do see that where it's sort of a command performance. And, um, but the names are quite difficult for young people who, would, who have an unusual, who's let's say the name is like Rockefeller. And they find it sometimes a burden because they'll be at a bar and everyone's like, oh, you're the, and then it's very public and they can't really hide. 
Everybody knows who they are. And that's one of the big problems of being inherited wealth is that you can't really trust anybody because they might be really wanting your money. And that was very damaging in interactional processes for young people, which then again creates more social closure to be with other wealthy people who don't you who don't have that same challenge. Absolutely. Yes. It, it, it reminded me a little bit, of course, he's not talking necessarily about gender, but when Branko Milanovic talks about Homo Pluto, and of course he's talking about people who have both high income and high cap, income from labor and income from capital. But it seems to me that these processes are connected and you end up with more and more inequality running away because people who with similar assets marry each other, as opposed to what maybe used to be the case that, you know, the doctor could marry the nurse or, yeah. you know, all, all those, right. th- those don't happen anymore. I see, That's at least right. they seem to not be um, happening anymore. I'm, I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to take one um, last question. Well, depending, let's see how it goes. But I have a question from Hannah Wilson, PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology, LSE. And she asks, um, Your comments on how the route to marriage is stalled when it is found out that a woman has more wealth than a man made me think about the interaction between assortative mating, as we were saying, and inequality, and in particular, how these conversations, discussions, and negotiations take place. Did your interviews give you any insight into the extent of how wealth is made apparent and evaluated prior to marriage? Um. You know, people can go for a long time without knowing somebody's wealth, depending on where they are. Housing is the one thing that often reveals it. Uh, visits to summer homes, parents' homes, etc. But um, there are people who try to go to great lengths to hide it and really don't want people to know. Um, and so what was interesting is that when these prenuptials happen, even though there's a family expectation, they're often very difficult interactionally for uh, fiancés to manage. And thus often it's a complete disaster. Often the husband, for example, produces a prenuptial 72 hours before a wedding or 48 hours before a wedding. And um, with second marriages, with a second marriage and a younger, often there's more run up, but the first marriage, there were a number of couples where it was, and then sometimes the woman would refuse and um, it's quite difficult. And part, so often the point is that they never talked about it and because money, talking about money is very difficult. And, and, and then sometimes the person has a lot of pressure from his parents and, and people keep stalling and stalling and stalling. And then they're like three days from the wedding and their parents give them a prenuptial and they, and they bring it in. And it's often a complete disaster. And so even 25 years later, people cried when they talked about it because it was very hurtful for them. Well, thank you so much. Again, um, looking at the time, I think we are reaching the conclusion of this event. And I would like to thank uh, our speaker and our discussant for this absolutely wonderful presentation. If there's ever a time that talking about inequality is important, clearly it seems to me that now is certainly a, a good time with rising inequalities and various processes that are happening around the world. It's been a pleasure to chair today's event. And if you thank you, obviously I'd like to thank the audience for joining us. 
and asking such interesting questions. If you would like to hear more about uh, from LSCIAI, please follow the links in the chat function to hear about upcoming events or sign up to our fortnightly newsletter to learn more about our work. So until we meet again, virtually or otherwise, thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.